The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise, as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed but skirted in the dark with consciousness suspended and being under luck. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. Hello and welcome to Loneliness and You, the podcast in which we hope to illuminate rather than seal the experience of loneliness and the question of whether it is indeed the maker of the soul. I'm your host, Axel Seaman. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has something interesting to say about loneliness, from an academic, artistic, or indeed any other perspective. My guest today is Julian Stern. Julian, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. Uh, hello, Axel. I'm Julian Stern. I'm a professor of education and religion at Bishop Grosseteste University in Lincoln uh, in the UK. And I work on education, school education, higher education, uh, and broader issues. I have a background in philosophy and social sciences, uh, and I work on a lot of things to do with education and religion, unsurprisingly, but also to do with solitude, silence, and loneliness, uh, which has become a much bigger area of work in the last uh, 10 years or so. Right, and you know, you've published a lot of interesting things in that area, and I've just played us the Dickinson poem um, that, you know, I would like you to tell us something about. How does the poem strike you? Um, do you find it interesting? What does it do to you? Does it pick up on what you mean by loneliness? Just give us, you know, a few impressions of the poem and what you think about it. Yes. Oh, I, I love uh, Dickinson. Came to her late, in fact, as I was started working on issues in solitude and loneliness and found, find her, found her incredibly uh, powerful in describing the complexity, the complexity of the emotion of loneliness, amongst other things. Uh, she is not entirely, as in this poem, talking about some of its uh, horrors, some of its terrors. She also talks about it as more piquant, as a bit more like the American tradition of lonesomeness, uh, as a, 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 a slightly less unpleasant emotion but she's one of the very earliest poets writers about loneliness who attributes it very clearly to a person and not to a place the romantic poets tended to talk about lonely heaths and lonely mountains and lonely rivers and fields and graveyards and that was of course a uh, an extension of how people felt when they were there but she is very much talking about it, loneliness as an emotion in the more modern sense uh, of loneliness. What is so uh, brilliant about it, she does it in a complex way. For me, an emotion is a bad feeling, a pain, painful feeling, combined with an interpretation, a cognitive thing, an interpretation of that feeling. And so loneliness can appear in a culture, in, a, in the world, as a particular interpretation can be ascribed to the bad feeling. And she has a number of those um, interpretations in that poem and in her other 
poetry, the separation of loneliness, the rejection by other people of loneliness, and some of the, the self-blame or fear or guilt or shame associated with loneliness. And there is a, a complexity in her writing that is very few people have done since, but certainly incredibly few people in any field did before her that I find powerful. I also like, and this may be, it's interesting hearing the uh, uh, the reading of the poem, uh, and the reader had a, a finish, like a full stop after the final word, seal, illuminate, or seal. And she had a, the reader had a, a completion there, a full stop, whereas Dickinson has a dash. And I love Dickinson's dashes. They are the most articulate dashes I've ever seen. And she leaves these things unsettled, without a full stop, but with a dash. So illuminate or seal. And she leaves it hanging in the uh, when you see the poem, rather than concluding. A university in the UK changed its logo a few years ago and added a full stop after the name, University of X. And it added a full stop in the logo because it wanted to be more or I think perhaps macho, more determined, more definite about its identity as a university. And I think, A, it looked rather ugly as a logo, but B, it did say that a full stop is a rather affirmative thing, a rather clear, definite statement. And Dickinson is clearly leaving things unsettled, not just by the or, but by the dash. Mm -hmm. So her dashes are very powerful and are helpful in showing the complexity of the emotion. Yeah, thank you. That's a very astute observation. Um, you clearly listened very carefully to our reading. Could you tell me a little, tell us a little bit, bit more about? Um, so, I think you're right. You know, at the end of the poem, it's caverns and its corridors illuminate or seal, and there's these, this dash. What's that choice about illuminate or seal as far as loneliness goes? Can you? Does that make any sense to you? Can you interpret this for us a little bit? I, I'm not going at this as a literary critic, or certainly not a professional professional one. Uh, I think lon loneliness can stop one from, uh, amongst other things, from re reaching out, from communicating, from being able to be with other people. Uh, an obvious solution, you know, sometimes a children's loneliness is rather underestimated and and teachers or family members, parents or whoever say, just go out and find a friend to play with. The point about loneliness is it often is experienced as a, an inability precisely to do that. It's not solved by just going out. And if you could just go out and do those things, then you probably wouldn't be lonely or wouldn't be in the depths of loneliness. So I think that idea of, of sealing the maker of the soul or the sealer of the soul, it can actually block, it can seal one from getting out of loneliness. It can be, a, a, I suppose, the living equivalent of a coffin lid, sealing one into itself. Uh, and that loneliness, whilst one is in it, the, the mystery for many people is, when did loneliness stop and how did it stop? Well, it suddenly just disappeared, it, it, it dissipated. But for some people, loneliness is a, a long-term, is a chronic, not an acute emotion. And it's as though the loneliness itself has sealed one from non-lonely 
emotions, non-lonely experiences. So I think that's what it says to me. I don't know if that's what Dickinson meant, but she has written of other forms of loneliness that are not so, as I would see, sealing. Yeah, thank you. I mean, of course, you know, what we're doing here is, is, is very amateurish, dare I say, you know, I'm not a literary scholar. Also, we just, you know, sort of um, shoot the breeze, as it were, you know, about this poem, what it, how it strikes us. Um, who knows, you know, what, what Dickinson thought. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't certainly have any idea. But this idea that loneliness um, is an emotion that is precisely not a marker that allows you to go out, you know, a signal, well, you need more social connection, um, that it is rather something that, you know, closes in on itself, you know, this sort of hermetic um, closure that you bring out. That's, that's, very, that's very appealing as a thought. I, I, I also read that, you know, in, 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 in this poem. Does that connect in any way to, to your work on loneliness? Tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what you do in this area. Does this connect to um, what we're just talking about right now? Yeah, yeah. I Well, strangely, I, I came into loneliness and other issues in solitude as a someone who was and still is very much a, what, what one would call a communitarian, someone who is community-oriented, who's dialogic, uh, works on schools as communities of dialogic communities, uh, works on understanding people in a sort of Martin Buber way of I and thou, that we only exist through dialogue with others. We don't exist independently, a very very much not an individualistic view of the world. Uh, and I was doing work on, on these issues in schools, how schools work, and asked uh, children and adults, when you're in school, when do you feel most included? The idea of inclusion is important in education debates, but in, in ordinary language, when do you feel most included? And one child, a boy, eight or nine, I think he was, uh, said, when I'm left alone, uh, and this was out of 140, 150 people. Uh, this one child said he was most in, he felt most included when he was left alone, allowed to work on his own. And I thought that a most peculiar response. And I thought maybe he hadn't understood the question. And then I thought for myself too, and in my own life, if I'm always made to join in, always made to be with people and in communication directly with people in the room all the time, I also start shrinking away. I like time to myself. I like to work on my own, and then I like to go out and talk to other people. So in the book I wrote of that project, which is called The Spirit of the School, I wrote a half a chapter, a few paragraphs, about solitude and loneliness and how if schools don't give people the chance to work on their own, to do their own independent thinking, their quiet time, their solitudinous time, then the school, ironically, will be promoting more loneliness, will make people feel more lonely if they never allow them to be with themselves on their own and with distant people, with the fictional characters. Even silent, I, I, when I was at school, it's not great schooling but fine schooling but we had time to read silently we had quite a lot of time of silent reading where you could disappear into the book into these fictional worlds nowadays in schools typically you read very short for a very short time and then discuss it with other other students now that's great, great pedagogically i do understand that but there are so few times now when children in schools get time alone so i started asking children and adults 
well, when do you get solitude in school and what's it feel like to be lonely in school or out of school? And they talked about, sadly, about solitude. The best times for solitude were going to the toilet or having tests. Now, both of those are rather, are not the best circumstances. For, it shouldn't be the best circumstances for solitude, going to the toilet or being in the middle of a test or an exam. But they are for many children in schools. So they seem to be, they all wanted more solitude, not just children, we might say, young people who are more introverted, but all children wanted more solitude in school. And they all, nearly all, all but one child, described how they had felt lonely, and many of them lonely because of how busy the school was. The best question I asked, I haven't always come up with brilliant answers, but uh, the best question I asked was, if you felt lonely ever, how did you know it was loneliness and not something else? And I've asked that of adults and I've asked that of children from the age of uh, uh, seven, uh, six, six and seven uh, through to adulthood. And, and people answer it in many fascinating ways. And that got me into trying to understand the complexity of loneliness. And one child, this was, a, uh, I think, a seven-year-old child, said, I would feel the guilt of loneliness. They would know that it was loneliness and not something else because they would feel the guilt of loneliness. And there's very little, there are some, some things, but there's very little in the literature about guilt and shame associated with loneliness. And I think that is actually one of the central characters of loneliness in the, particularly in the 20th, 21st century. So by asking children and adults, how do you know it's loneliness and not something else, got me, that was the key to unlocking the different understandings, different experiences of, of loneliness. So I've been researching that and uh, similar things in, in many other ways as well, and writing about it. So I've written a book for children and a book for uh, academic researchers and have worked on uh, a number of other other books. Interestingly, my first draft of the book for children, for 9 to 13 year olds, I quoted some of the children from my research and what they said about loneliness. And the publisher, the, the reviewers, sent it back saying, this is much too harsh, this is much too severe, can you, can you make it more, more gentle, please? And I realized that children's own experiences of loneliness were seen as too harsh to tell to children. Scary. Right. Um, let's yeah. stick a little bit to that, you know, relation between solitude and loneliness that you've talked about um, and that I know is at the center of your work. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, that loneliness, you know, isn't necessarily something that is connected to the presence of others. You can feel insanely lonely, intensely lonely, you know, when you're surrounded by others but then on the other hand there's solitude where you know sort of being by oneself is positively experienced can you spell that relation out a little bit you know what's what's the relation between solitude and loneliness do you have any thoughts on that yeah it it would be easy it would be easier for me frankly and a, and a few authors like paul tillich the, the theologian does it who says um aloneness when negatively experienced is loneliness and when positively experienced is solitude and that's a very neat way of describing it but i'm afraid i don't think it quite works as, as simply as that for me solitude is not an emotion solitude's an experience and 
consists of some sort of separation of different kinds. It can be geographical separation, it can be emotional separation, it can be, you know, the auditory, and you know, all sorts of separation. The problem with that, even that definition, is separation from what? And it's usually separation from other human beings. So people will enjoy their solitude walking their dog. Now, they are not separate from their dog, and they have an emotional attachment to their dog, but they'll still describe it as solitude. So what counts as solitude is incredibly difficult to pin down. But it's a, a situation, I think, not a, it's not an emotion on its own. Of various ways of being alone, you could say being in solitude, there are some emotions attached to that, and loneliness is an emotion, mostly an emotion, which is, for me, the three types of um, interpretations associated with the pain of, of loneliness, which is separation from people, rejection by people, and some sort of self-rejection or feeling of guilt or, or shame or, or some sort of uh, uh, giving yourself, the re blaming yourself. If you're rejected by people and you don't like them anyway, you say, well, forget it, I'm, I'm better off on my own. That's not a feeling of loneliness. The feeling of loneliness is when you think, oh, is it because I'm not attractive enough or not able enough or not nice enough? Uh, and you start blaming yourself. It's that self-blame that makes a lot of lon lonelinesses. But, of course, people nowadays in social science today and a lot of psychologists as well talk of loneliness just as social isolation. The UCLA loneliness scale doesn't measure loneliness as an emotion. It measures social isolation which can be the result of transport or disability or all sorts of things, irrespective of whether you actually have the emotion of loneliness. So the word loneliness can change and has changed recently to allow for loneliness simply meaning social isolation. Right. So you want to say that um, loneliness has got two aspects, as it were. It's directed at others, which, you know, is the part that's very much, you know, taken up in the literature, um, in the psychological literature at the moment. But then you want to say that it also has um, a self-directed aspect, and that's what, you know, may result in, in, in feelings of guilt or shame. Is it like that? Yeah, or rather of, of the version, you know, of the many versions of loneliness, and as I say, Dickinson's brilliant at describing several of them, of the many versions, there is a common version from, I would say, late 19th century through to to now. There is a common version that is has all three of those dimensions, but I don't want to say other things called loneliness are just not loneliness. Mm, yeah. But they're different different varieties, yeah. Mm. And then you, you told us uh, just before um, that, you know, you're a communitarian, that, you know, you think... Um, dialogue is at the heart of what the the human condition at the heart of how we see ourselves at the heart of how we come to be ourselves so is it then fair to say that loneliness somehow results when that dialogue breaks down is that is that is that would that be a fair way of uh, describing your thinking yeah that's uh, yeah that 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 can be yes because sol in solitude you can be in dialogue with fictional characters in with the long dead the you know with yourself as well uh if you're unable to be self-reflective in a, in a healthy way in a positive way if you associate self-reflection with pain in other words you reflect badly on yourself that can be an experience experienced as loneliness 
that's what I mean about guilt or shame. You can be, you can still be sort of in dialogue with yourself, but you're telling yourself off. I know a psychologist, Bill de Salmon, personal construct psychologist, says she discovered through her work with other people as a clinical psychologist that uh, the voice in her own head that criticized herself, that said how useless she was, was part of herself. And she needed to recover into herself that critical bit because she'd always thought she was useless because she kept telling herself that she was useless. But only in midlife did she realize that that telling voice was also her. So do you think that if one wants to, you know, um, well, cure is probably too strong a word, but, you know, ameliorate, improve, you know, one's, one's um, sense of loneliness, which after all is unpleasant, you know, it's not a nice way to be. Uh, do, do you think then that um, that has to begin with looking at oneself rather than other people? Um, would that follow from what you've said so far? I work a lot with young people and think a lot about educational educational issues. I'm an educationist. I think people do would value and do value opportunities to be, if I say trained, educated in how to experience solitude positively and how to experience being with other people positively as well. And both of those things are things that we do develop and can develop and can help each other develop more. How we treat each other, whether we are genuinely dialogic or we're manipulative, uh, makes a difference to the other person and gives another person an opportunity to get into dialogue. So a lot of loneliness is the result of not having opportunities to be positively in dialogue either with other people who are there or with other people who are not there, who are, you know, in books. So uh, teaching children the joys of reading literature, poetry, uh, reading Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson is not the cheeriest of poets, and yet it can be wonderful to find a fellow feeler of, you know, someone who also experiences loneliness. It is why she is very popular with people who are somewhat uh, lonesome in various ways. She's popular with other people as well, but she is popular with those people who feel that way, not to escape from loneliness, but to understand it and understand themselves a little more. Right. And so, so you know, you'd probably say something like um, that understanding yourself and understanding, you know, where your loneliness comes from, that's already something that's going to help with feeling better about it and yourself is, is that sort of right yeah yeah so i've spent a long time trying to stop loneliness getting into the dsm the diagnostic statistical manual for um, mental health issues trying not to make it a pathological thing to make it an, an illness or a condition loneliness is something that's experienced it's perfectly normal experience and there is in the UK and maybe elsewhere there's a campaign against loneliness and I think that's the wrong thing to do it's like a campaign against sadness well of course sadness is unpleasant but you don't have a campaign against it bereavement is awful but how do you campaign against bereavement well you don't it's it's right to be sad if someone's died there are circumstances where well yeah actually it's not unreasonable to feel lonely. So I'm not trying to cure loneliness. 
but I think there are ways of being in the world for myself and with other people and as an educator but also a friend or a family member that can that may help reduce the amount of loneliness that is created but my idea isn't to reduce loneliness it's to care for people or to educate people or to listen to people and so on so I'm, I'm slightly wary of going into cures for loneliness even though I do think there are some <laughs> that makes a lot of, I think that's a very astute observation um you know what you just said about you know um loneliness being like grief and like sadness and you know it, it doesn't make sense to want to get rid of it right it's part of the human condition and it's something that happens to people and you you know have to look at it in that light we're approaching slowly the end of our interview and one of the aspects of loneliness research that fascinates me is that for the researcher there's a connection between what they're researching and probably their own experience right because as we've just said you know everybody is lonely at some stage so that makes it a very unusual research topic doesn't it because you know it's not like you know you're investigating cancer um, and its causes you are in, in a way investigating yourself or an aspect of yourself would you say that's fair or not yes oh yes and it's a as i say it was it was the two things it was the uh, child saying I feel included when I'm left alone. And then it was me recognizing myself in that that led to my first writing about solitude and loneliness, both. But I think, uh, I, I don't think that's that uncommon because, as I say, we study sadness or grief or bereavement, and pretty much everyone experiences that at, at some time, or presumably everyone experiences it at some time. Uh, in their life it's the fact that it's a such a common experience and yet it's taboo when I wrote 2014 wrote my book on uh, loneliness and solitude in schools it was the first book in the English language that I could find written on the topic of loneliness or solitude in schools since the 1970s now for something so commonly experienced a very ordinary word of you know a common word used widely but not to be written about it. It was the taboo nature of loneliness that made me want to write about it more. I often write about topics that are that I know and that you know that are familiar to me that other people don't then talk about. Death is another one, but so is homework, which in education is a big issue but is not really deeply talked about. Or research in university, which people talk about the products of research but not really about what it means, or the nature of community, or curiosity, or care, or dialogue, or being spirited. So these ordinary words that are used, but are not explored, either they, they seem to become either taboo or untalked about. That's what interested me in that. And understanding people, including understanding people who are separated from me or from each other, and understanding me when I feel separated or rejected or whatever from, from other people. I'm not someone who's spent a lifetime digging myself out of loneliness, but I've, of course, experienced loneliness as, as we all have. And I found it difficult and still find it difficult describing what that is, which is why I asked myself and then I asked other people, when you feel lonely, how do you know it's loneliness? What characteristics does it have? And that's the question that's got the most interesting and varied answers for me, including from, from myself. 
Yes, thank you. That's uh, such a good question, and I think it's an appropriate way to end our podcast. You know, what do you feel like when you're feeling lonely? Um, I think it's a question that probably each of us answers in different ways, right? Um, and you've done a lot of work to, you know, help us uh, thinking about that question. So thank you very much for your time today, Julian. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Axel. My guest today was Julian Stern. He's a professor of education and religion at Bishop Grosteste University in Lincoln in the UK. Thanks for listening to Loneliness and You, a podcast on the research and experience of loneliness.